1: funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org podcast.
2: Listener
3: supported WNYC Studios.
4: Oh, wait, you're listening. <laughs> okay.
5: All right.
4: Okay. All right. <clears throat> You're listening, listening
5: to
6: Radio Lab.
5: Radio Lab from <laughs> WNYC. C- C- yeah. C- <laughs>
7: hey,
3: I'm Jad Boomrod. I'm Robert Krolbich. this is Radio Lab. And today we ha- will start with a prelude.
6: Hello, hello, England. Are you there?
3: From our producer, Annie McEwen. Hello.
6: Oh, hi. Yay. Is that Annie? (laughs) It is. Is this Rupert? Well done. Yes. Well done. This is Rupert Pennant Ray.
8: Right. Hello.
6: He's 71 and he's had a very busy, very successful career.
8: Yes. Perhaps the two most prominent things I've done. I was on the staff of The Economist for many years and editor I then went from there to the Bank of England where I was deputy governor.
6: So you can imagine Rupert is a very knowledgeable guy.
8: Absolutely.
6: Especially when it comes to things like
8: interest rates or exchange rates or commodity prices, and ha ha. He knows
6: all about that stuff. (laughs) But this whole time he's been this like super successful guy. He's been living with this one big big cavernous
8: gap in my life, yeah.
6: Until very recently, Rupert knew absolutely nothing about science. And when I say nothing, I mean, like, he had no clue about how the natural world around him worked in any way.
8: Literally. For instance... The periodic table. I'd never heard of the periodic table.
6: Until last year. And when one day his wife told him he was a mammal.
8: Well, that was a shocker. He
6: had no idea.
8: I said, no, no, of course I'm not a mammal. What? <laughs> I, uh, I thought she was using it as a term of abuse.
6: He'd use words like fiber optic cable.
8: Many, many times.
6: And say things like,
8: oh, that's radioactive.
6: When describing something he felt was bad or dangerous.
8: Without a clue of what I meant by that phrase.
6: I guess, like, what was it like to be a very important person in very important circles, but have this gap?
8: Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I became good at bluffing. I was on the board of a number of mining companies, and I hope none of my colleagues from those companies are listening.
6: Part of being on the board meant he had to read all these geologist reports, yeah. and mathematologist reports, yeah, oh,
8: and then we would have board discussions about all this, and I would sit there stroking my chin in a way I hoped would look like a wise chap. But I didn't really have a clue what people were talking about.
6: What was your schooling like that you didn't have?
8: Well, this was the, this is where it all began, of course. I come from uh, Zimbabwe, and I went to school there.
6: It was a boarding school, the kind of school where you, you wear uniforms, you play cricket. And for some reason, if you're extra clever, instead of studying any science at all, you study Greek.
8: Of course, the irony today is that I remember virtually no Greek at all. So it's not as though it did me a huge amount of favors. So he'd always thought... As soon as I have time... He would write this wrong. That's what I'm doing now. I'm studying science for the first time at the age of 71.
6: And he's really going for it. He's got a tutor.
8: Who I see for three hours a week.
6: Studying physics, biology, and his favorite.
8: Chemistry. I have been really absorbed by chemistry.
6: I, g- I guess you are married to a scientist. Is that correct? I am. I, so, I am. Okay, so what is is that influencing your studies at all? or Yeah,
8: we had an agreement that at some point I would put this right, coupled with another agreement that she would be a very helpful tutor to me, which indeed she's proving to be. But I think there's a danger now that she's going to rather wish that she'd never <laughs> encouraged me to do this because oh, oh, really? i I now never stop saying, "Wow, have you noticed this What are and the wows
6: what are oh the wows? I
8: mean all sorts of things. It was partly the periodic table when I first discovered this i couldn't believe how elegant it was, how compressed, and how beautifully defined it all was. But I'm uh, very, very devoted to it and have a, a copy of it close by most of the day.
7: Oh,
6: really? Oh,
8: yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you
6: are very committed. This is amazing.
8: Then there are other things. Okay. <laughs> whole principle of uh, electricity and how it lights up bulbs and how it then moves on and goes all around the house and comes out at the other end and things like speed and velocity and acceleration and cells and you're talking about plants and you're talking about animals. Something as simple as the glass of water I've got on the table by me now, I now look at it with a huge amount of respect, (laughs) and I think, my God, if only I could have a look with microscope eyes and see those little molecules of hydrogen and the single atoms of oxygen and how they were all joined together, it would be such a delight. (laughs)
6: I can see why your wife's, like, rolling her eyes a little bit. Oh, yeah.
8: No, this is getting tedious, I think. Rupert,
6: go to bed. (laughs) Yeah,
8: Ah.
6: It sounds very much to me like you've fallen in love.
8: (laughs) Yeah, it does. It feels like that. It's all fresh and wonderful and exciting, and, you know, you can't really believe it. It's like one day having a... Miracle laser surgery on your eyes, and they turn from being colorblind to being fully functional and seeing the richness of the world around you. And thinking, my God, and there I was in that one-dimensional color. And now I've got all of this to revel in.
6: (laughs) I picture you in a musical, sort of like swinging... Your briefcase is about as you like jump, you know, jump home from work and dance around lampposts and stuff like <laughs> well,
8: that. <laughs> that would be nice. I, I wouldn't recommend my dancing, but anyway, oh, no? i I, uh, I do uh, like the image. Thanks, Annie.
9: Sure.
3: Speaking of reveling and reveling in reveling in
10: the wonder getting back to basics, mm. you know, like asking the questions you never get a chance to ask.
3: Uh, That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. This is one in a series of shows we've been doing. All of us are curious about this, that, and the other. And some of the this's and the that's's and the others won't go away. They won't go into the show either. No, they won't go into the show either. Because
10: the show increasingly is these big investigative things. Right. Feels like, okay,
3: let's make a space for the this, that, and the others. So we did. We decided to just devote a few shows to small questions asked by our people that wouldn't go away. So what the heck? We'll just answer them.
10: Yeah. And maybe in the process, you get back to that Rupertarian state of renewal. Of wonder.
3: Yeah. All right. So uh, you ready,
10: Bobby K? I I am. We're going to start things off with... Hello, hello. 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 Yay.
11: An
10: interrogatory <laughs> duet Ooh. from producers uh, Molly Webster. <laughs> this is Molly. Hi, Molly. And
11: Arianne.
10: Arianne Wack. Arianne.
11: Hi, Hi
0: Arianne. <laughs> Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. So we're going to jump right into the
12: conversation that we had with this researcher.
11: All right. Well, my name is Oriana Aragon, and I'm an assistant professor here at Clemson University okay
12: um, she studies human so, behavior and emotion
0: so maybe you can just tell me like what made you first run into this question well it was a summer 2011 Oriana was a grad student at Yale at the time and one night she was just sitting around
11: watching late-night television it's Conan. Conan O'Brien and... We've talked about this before. Leslie Bibb. Very beautiful, talented uh, woman. Thank you. You're very- the very talented and, and lovely actress was on. And she was talking about having encountered this cute puppy.
6: Yeah, I mean, there was this woman. I was just at the um, hair salon. Mm-hmm. And she had this little dog. It was kind of an ugly dog. It was like a Maltese. It looked real janky. and <laughs> yeah. But she took... Like, this little curly hair, and she must have straightened with a flat iron. And then she put one ponytail holder and then another ponytail holder. So it kind of looked like a water ox.
5: Yeah.
0: (laughs) And And then Oriana says Leslie did something that just sort of
11: struck her. She started, like, gritting her teeth. Scrunching her face. Squeezing her hands.
6: I just walked up to her and I was like, this dog is making me so mad. (laughs)
11: I'm gonna punch it, it's so cute! You know, she's like, it's so cute, you just wanna smash it. She's
13: so cute. Okay, so cute, wait a minute. Right? When you
14: say, I wanna punch you, you make me so mad, it means that it's
15: you- like I love it! <laughs> <laughs> See, so, that I never say,
0: like, and Oriana was just sitting there watching the show and she was like, huh, wow, that's a strange reaction. Like, Leslie saw this cute, sweet thing and she just wanted to kick it in the head. <laughs> which might seem odd, but, as Oriana kept thinking about this moment, she was like, oh, yeah. We do this. We do this sort of thing all the time. I do this. I totally do this. I note: not a new mom.
12: Every single day, when I see my baby, when I see his, like, little body, my joints tense up and my hands, my fingers start to curl and my teeth start to clench I just...
11: I just need to eat his face. And I need to figure out what's going on here. This sort of like, ah, feeling with cuteness. Um, What is it that we're doing and why do we do that? So anyhow. Back in 2011, Oriana set out to answer those questions
0: and the conventional thinking at the time was that you know if this if there is an aggressive expression like gritting teeth or clenched fists or wanting to squeeze something and it
11: must be representing some sort of aggression
0: underneath that there's a little bit of violence you want to hurt that thing yes which Sort of makes sense to me because I think my first thought is, ah, we were all cannibals at some point, and I, there's something in there coming through, and I'm, and and it's not good in polite society, and that urge is just the urge sneaking out in some way.
11: Mm, that's interesting. No, I think it's so. Work has work has continued um, for the last six years on this, and I I've found a lot. I've understood a lot now about. Um, what these expressions communicate and what they represent. So
0: when Oriana first started researching this, one of the things she had to figure out was
11: when we see something cute. Do we actually want to squeeze? Or um, is this just a expression? A figure speech, I want to squeeze you. And so she started doing these
0: experiments where she would bring people into the lab and she would show them these pictures.
11: Like a little baby duckling. Oh, duckling. You know, um, a little baby fluffy puppy. And then give them bubble wrap. It was funny because it was in this like really quiet hall and throughout the entire semester you could hear pop, 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 And for the really cute pics like baby ducklings. You hear this like oh, they would just be ringing out <laughs> sheets of bubble wrap. That
12: I <laughs> identify with that because I was like bubble wrap would <laughs> not cut it for me. So
0: Oriana was like okay it looks like there's real aggression here yeah. but and maybe this isn't that much of a shocker at the same time She found there was actually nothing negative going on inside these people. Mm. They were actually full of joy and happiness while they were tearing bubble wrap apart.
11: So it's not about an actual latent aggression. We're just, "Ah," you know, (laughs) we're just sort of expressing it this way. But we don't mean it that we're aggressive at all. But that's so strange
10: to have this sort of weird uh, schism where you're uh, happy on the inside, but aggressive on the outside.
0: Well. It's actually not as weird as you would think. No, mm, no. Oriana pointed out that in some ways it's so common we don't even notice it.
11: It happens all the time. You see athletes Wee! or sports fans Wee! in what looks like absolute fury. No! Oh my God! <gasps> Punching the
0: air, screaming, oh
11: my God! or weeping.
0: Yes, when something great happens. And that's another thing. Think about, you know,
16: oh,
9: Are you serious?
11: Tears of joy. Oh you see brides and, and you see... You're the
7: $2 million winner? I, I apparently am the two
11: million, um, Lottery winners. I, 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 or... Oh, my God. You see people weeping at the awe of nature. Double complete rainbow. Think about all the times when what happens on the outside, the display, doesn't match what's going on on the inside.
10: <laughs> but I... I still, I still feel like I'm at why. Why would you want to punch the cute puppy or uh, weep at the rainbow? So
11: Oriana started to look at all this stuff. And having tested everything that I can think of, everything that's in the literature, there is a through line to what these expressions represent and communicate. So according to Oriana, when you see tears, like all kinds of tears, whether they're for winning the medal, whether they're for looking at the beautiful sunset, it's the same as tears at a funeral or tears of grief. It communicates wanting to stop, wanting to be still, Mm. wanting to pause. And Oriana said that
0: when it comes to these like sort of aggressive uh, expressions because, you know, you see a cute puppy
11: or you scored a goal or you actually want to fight somebody. That's about wanting to go, wanting to move, wanting to approach, wanting to get close to. It's about moving forward or momentum.
12: That's funny because I like when I see my baby at four o'clock in the morning when he gets up and wants to nurse I'm exhausted but it's not until like I see him and like his face lights up like he's so excited to see me and it's oh I want to like smush him and bite him right
11: like that's the thing that gets me going <laughs> I feel like in those moments right because it's that's definitely it it's it's a of those care behaviors
12: it's like so just is nice to know that in situations where like we may not know what's going on, we may not be able to like read our own emotions or know how to respond to the world, our most basic bodily instincts, they like boil down to this really simple set of um, choices yeah. or like urges. Mm-hmm. You know what I think is I, I
0: find myself thinking um, in a way that I appreciate is uh You know, I'm not even going to get all these right, but do you know, like, remember when, like, humans used to think of themselves as composed of, like, fire, water, wind. (laughs) The
11: humors. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: And somehow in this conversation, I feel like, oh, we were right all along. It might not have been fire, but it could have just been go. Yeah. You know, and maybe it wasn't water, but it was stop.
12: Yeah. That's what I'm telling you. We need a self-help book out of this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll get right on that. (laughs)
3: Thank you, Molly Webster. Thank you, Arian Wack. Molly's here, by the
0: way. I was like, you're welcome, Robert. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm now disclaimer, Molly, which is just to say that uh, Leslie Bibb has actually been on Conan uh, a number of times talking about how she wants to punch... Dogs. dogs and 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 punch babies, and in one she wants to slash Angelica Houston's face, uh, oh all god. motivated by the same cute aggression slash reason. Her face? Slash her face. That was how she introduced herself to Angelica Houston. Oh
3: my
10: god! Uh,
0: so that's just to say that at the top of the piece. Um, what happened after that?
3: Just I'm curious. I
0: think Angelica Houston abruptly turned around and walked away. <laughs> as
3: as yeah, as one might, as
0: one uh, might. So that's might. just to say at the top of this piece. Um, while Oriana was inspired in 2011 by a Lesley imper- uh, appearance, we used a scene from 2018.
15: Okay. Oh, there was like a black okay. outfit
0: in one and a red outfit in another.
10: Got it. Got it. All right. Well, Are thanks, welcome, Molly. Guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah,
0: sure. Okay. Have fun.
10: All right, Tracy. Hi. Should we ask you how you,
3: how you got the idea to do this? Right. Is, is that the right question to start us off? Or but are you? It's.
0: It is a
16: question, and it will do for right now.
3: Okay. <laughs> so Tracy, facing the challenge of a completely blank page, uh-huh. where any question at all might be legitimate. Correct. How did you land upon this one? <laughs>
15: Um, So um, one of my friends. Am I here? (laughs) Her name is Kat Child. I'm a reporter with Code Switch, a team at NPR that covers race and culture. And so I saw her tweeting one day because this is how how I keep up with all my friends. I just
16: look at what they're tweeting. (laughs) And she was tweeting how um, she was feeling very vulnerable right now because she's working on a story that was going to involve Samson. Yes. And um, so I want to know a
15: little bit about How did you meet Samson? So I got Samson in 2015. And in 2015, this weird thing happened where all of a sudden I became obsessed with just wanting a dog. All of a sudden, all I could do was browse these dog adoption websites in the D.C. area. So there was like a lot of like, you know, going to shelters and going to
16: rescue groups. And finally, this rescue group that I think she'd been in contact with emailed her and said, why don't you come meet Samson?
15: And I clicked on his profile and he was this really, really adorable beagle mix. Uh, they had this like cute video on YouTube where he's jumping around and he looks so happy and he's <laughs> romping in a field playing with other dogs. And the profile didn't really say much about him, just said that he was a little shy. He was a stray in South Carolina. Um, and so I arranged to you know go meet him at this adoption event and when my partner and i go to the event we find samson and he is just as cute in person except we notice that he's super super scared where he's like shaking and he can't even stand on his own and the people at the adoption event had to have him in his lap uh So, I don't know. Maybe that should have been a red flag for anyone who knows dogs. (laughs) But for me, I was like, oh, like he's so, you know, he's going to come out of his shell. I'm going to be the one to bring him out of his shell.
16: And so, um, we can't bring him home. Samson was living with a foster family
15: and they wanted to do a home visit. So the foster came over with Samson to my apartment, my little basement apartment in DC. And we go on this walk, a little exploratory walk around the neighborhood. And while they're walking, we pass by a man who is black and he's wearing a sweatshirt. And the foster turns to me and goes, oh, he doesn't like men in hoodies. Huh. (laughs) So Kat
16: is thinking, and I'm thinking it when she saw me this. Are you saying that he's scared of guys in hoodies or are you saying that he's afraid of black men?
15: Right. But Samson was also afraid of me. Um, And... I still really badly wanted a dog. And Samson seemed, you know, just like, like he needed me. Um, And I don't know, maybe this is like the patronizing human adopt a dog thing. I don't know. I don't know. And so I I just, we decided, my partner and I decided to adopt him. And we loved him so much. And we love him. We love him. Present tense. So much. So... Cat and her partner
16: take Samson in and almost uh, immediately
15: Cat would have a friend over who is black. He would just like bark at them. Bark at her friends who were brown. For a long time. Uh, he especially did not like one of my Korean American friends. When they would go outside. He just was afraid of anybody who was African American or, you know, like Latinx. He would growl at them. It, it just was like very obvious. Well, well, but then it became well, this. Yeah, let's slow down. So to, to clarify <laughs> just one thing. You
16: yourself are not white.
15: <laughs> I am. I am Asian-American. OK, yes, I'm Chinese-American. Did you think that Samson maybe because you said he was a little afraid of you at first? Do you think that he maybe was afraid of you <laughs> because you weren't white? I don't know. He so I, he did like my partner more and my partner is white. <laughs> oh, no. And, and Kat did put Samson in training,
16: but like that Samson. didn't seem to work. So she was just left looking at this adorable little dog that she just taken in thinking, Is he racist? And I should say quick... This is like a question that a lot of people have. I'm
5: really sorry. You,
10: you know, you know what's
16: going
9: on. Huh? You have a racist dog.
16: You know, I've, this is not the first time I, I've heard.
9: Like this morning, my mom called me.
16: This idea that dogs can be racist. Because she thinks her dog is racist. Yeah. <laughs> it comes up in TV shows all the time.
6: He seems to get really aggressive towards people with darker color skin. I'm so sorry.
16: There's articles about it in Huffington Post and Psychology Today. And and I actually,
6: okay, I we'll see. News? Went
16: around to some dog parks and asked and fellow dog owners. Have you ever heard of this idea that a dog can, like, be oh, racist? And there were a bunch of people who were like,
13: I have. Oh,
16: yeah, totally. Once, a long time ago.
13: Yeah. Oh, I don't know what you're oh, talking
16: about. You know, I heard stories about
13: Oh, walk by somebody
16: and they're like, he doesn't like uh, white girls. Dogs that maybe didn't like white women. You'd be bottom and just Black women. Rah, 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 rah. Black men. I guess all of this is just a long way of saying that this is definitely, you know, a thing. So my question is, is it actually a thing? Okay, now I'm rolling. Um, So this is going to be kind of um, a fun conversation about race, (laughs) but also dogs. (laughs) So to try and answer this question, Kat and I sat down with this woman. Sure, sure. I'm Alexandra Horowitz.
9: I study at the Dog Cognition Lab in Barnard. Does research on dogs, thinks about dogs, writes about dogs? All things dogs.
16: Okay. um, so, So to jump in, Kat told Alexandra about how she had taken Samson in. He
15: barked at... He
16: seems to be kind of racist. <laughs> but like, you know, is that even possible? I don't know. Can a dog be racist? Um. She was like, well, obviously dogs aren't racist the way humans are racist.
9: I mean, racism is rooted in our history. The history of our country and how we've dealt with different groups of people. But dogs do not know about that. What a dog knows about comes from its own life that dog's own life yeah but as we were talking through what dogs can do
16: we ended up having this conversation about the most basic elements of being a racist
10: Mm. a racist a racist anything
16: yeah so think about it you know step one is just putting people in these different groups in your head
15: i was trying to think about this too though like Can dogs remember types of people or just...
9: I do think that dogs are sensitive to new things and differences. And one thing that Alexandra told us that she's seen in her work is that... Dogs do seem to play differently with different breeds, for instance. They play better with ones that kind of look like them.
10: Wait, so dogs have a bias? Like, they they are prejudiced for their own kind?
9: Maybe. Dogs have cliques at the dog park?
7: Yeah,
10: they do.
9: (laughs) And partly might be because they have the same kind of equipment, the same length tail, the same kind of ear shape, the same body size... So they understand each other's cues a little better. might just be easier. But that's what I'm saying is dogs notice differences in the world. And when it comes to noticing differences between people,
16: there is some at least anecdotal evidence that dogs can see,
9: um, can tell men and women apart.
10: Mm, But they can't see differences in skin color, right? Because aren't dogs colorblind?
9: They absolutely can see color differences. Oh,
10: they can. Yes. What does uh, the world look like to a dog?
9: The best approximation is that they're probably seeing something like the color spectrum when it's dusk, and it feels like yellows and so forth, and oranges have have disappeared or have been muted. Okay, so the dog can see color.
16: Yeah, so it seems like it's possible that maybe dogs can tell the difference between skin tones, Mm -hmm. but then the next question is, can a dog then make associations, you know, like light-skinned people are like this and dark-skinned people are like this, and then carry that forward in all those other interactions whenever it meets another person like that person?
3: Yeah, group bias, I
10: guess. Right. Yeah, yeah.
16: And can it do that with dark-skinned people? That's an interesting and, question. You know, and then say, and then do this.
3: How would you ever test a thing like that?
16: Well... So Kat actually did this, did a story for Code Switch. Okay, it is rainy. And as part of that, she found this woman named Lori.
15: Hi. Oh, hi.
16: Um. Lori Santos. Um, she is another dog cognition expert, except this time she's at Yale.
15: I give her a call and I'm like... Hi, (laughs) I think my dog is racist.
16: And she kind of said the same thing as Alexandra. I think the word racist has a lot in it, you know, the history of race in America and all these things. But in her work, she has been trying to answer... This very basic question. Can a dog um, show
0: preferences for certain racial groups?
16: So Lori designed a study. A dog version of a very famous human study known as an IAT. Which is the Implicit Association Test. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this test.
3: I don't know what it is.
16: Okay, so the Implicit Association Test, it's put out by Harvard, right? Right. So basically that test... You can take it online. It kind of feels like a computer game. Where, where you get these words and you have to sort whether they are positive or negative. And then you're also getting faces, like just faces of people, and you have to sort whether they are black or white. Basically, they're trying to test to see if you like associate certain groups of people with certain kind of negative or positive images or thoughts.
15: Correct, yes, yes.
10: Hmm. How on earth would you give this to a dog?
15: Well,
16: um,
0: I think our dog is here right now, so we can- uh,
16: Lori found with implicit bias research- Similar kinds of studies have been done with human babies. Human babies? Babies? Yes, to see if they have racial preferences. And since they're babies, you know, and they can't use computers with words, researchers use photos. Photos of different human faces.
15: So- Welcome, Vader Hello! To do this for dogs,
16: Lori had this pit bull mix named Vader come in.
15: And what she does is she brings the dog into this little room.
16: And they have the dog sit kind of
15: near the center of the room where there is a research assistant. So we're going
7: to start with one of the picture shows that we have.
15: And she has this box and it kind of reminds me of like a little puppet theater where It's open on one side, and you can slide in different images uh, at the front that the dog will see. So the
16: research assistant gets this box ready, slides in a picture, and then...
12: Vader,
7: look!
16: ...pulls off this cover to show Vader a picture of a Black person. Just a straight face, you know, kind of headshot. And then they show the same picture to Vader.
15: Over and over. Vader, look! Over again, Vader.
16: the same straight-faced look. black person. But then Vader, look. the researcher shows Vader this picture of a smiling, happy looking German shepherd. And then black person
4: Vader,
16: look. smiling German shepherd. Look. It's all very randomized. so sometimes it's black person, black person, then smiling dog. and you know, you get the idea.
3: And what is it that they're looking for here?
16: Well, so that day with Vader, they only showed black faces and happy dogs. And um, you know, when Vader comes in again, they'll likely show him other kinds of combinations, white faces with angry dogs, black faces with angry dogs and, and, and you know, so on. And what they're looking for, and and this is the same thing they're looking for when they do this test on babies, is to see whether the dog is attentive and focused or bored and unfocused. Basically, how is a dog reacting to these two different pictures being put together?
15: The way Lori put it was, you know, if if a dog shows like a pro-white bias, then they should find the categories of white faces with happy dogs easier to process and therefore more boring. So they might like look away more or they might not be able to stay focused. Boredom implies that that dog might have a preference for white people.
16: But then if they see a black face and a happy dog and they stay really focused on it and they're not bored, that could possibly mean that maybe they're surprised that these two things go together. And maybe that's evidence of a little bit of prejudice.
10: Hmm. So uh, so what has Lori learned?
16: Well, Dad, um, here it is, <laughs> the big news. And it's too soon to tell. It's still too early to tell.
0: Oh. Yeah. I mean, we're really at such early stages, it's really hard to say. Um, I guess one thing we have learned is that you know, so many people are interested in the results of this study. You know, People really want to know the answer to the question of how dogs see these categories. And that's been really compelling just to realize how fascinated people are with this question.
16: How often
9: do you get the is my dog racist question? I hear it regularly, sure. Again, Alexander Horowitz. You know, because we see dogs as mirrors of ourselves, we see our dogs as mirrors of ourselves. And in many ways,
16: they are. Because regardless of what a dog can see or not see, or whether they associate negative feelings with different faces, the one thing that dogs are very, very good at, and and this is something that both Lori and Alexandra made a point of, is paying attention to us, and more specifically, how we behave. For instance, um, remember this idea that dogs can tell men and women apart.
13: Mm-hmm.
16: Well, she was like, it probably has nothing to do with what men and women look like, but
9: instead, it's how we behave. Men and women deal with dogs a little bit different on the whole. <laughs> I should have brought some treats. Why didn't I bring treats?
4: Whoop. Why didn't I bring treats?
9: Women are more effusive. Oh,
4: you're so pretty. You're so
9: pretty. Women are more likely to talk to dogs in a higher-pitched voice. Oh, Women that might that be more so likely scary. to crouch down That's to so a funny. dog instead of kind of coming right up to a dog. So these are obviously generalizations, but I think a dog is very sensitive to those behavioral differences. And Alexandra says the
16: person who dogs are the most sensitive to, whose responses they're paying the closest amount of attention to, is you. You, the guardian.
9: You, the owner. We have created a species to be sensitive when we feel tense.
15: I wonder if, you know, I suspected this thing. It became this, like, Sort of funny, but not really funny thing that I always wondered and somehow conf- like, confirmed it or made it happen just by, you know, just the anxiety of, oh, my gosh, is my dog actually, is he racist, quote unquote.
9: Well, so if, for instance, and I don't want to put behaviors in your, I don't want to say you're doing something you're not, but if you tense up when you see your dog starting to have a reaction to somebody, Um, and your dog's on the leash, or they're at some level in your control, then the dog will will feed off of that.
16: Kat, do you think that that's something you do? Do you think that that you have almost this pre-reaction to Samson's reaction that might tell Samson to react?
15: (sighs) Yes and no. I don't know. This could be a situation where this has become such a running joke among our friends, you know, that our friends who... You know, many of our friends are people of color. They come over and they're already like, oh, this this fucking like this stupid dog, like this dog, he's going to bark at me. He might bite me. I don't want to touch him, really. Or maybe I do. And so maybe (laughs) that like like maybe a host of things reinforced to Samson Um, or maybe he is racist. But like there is a potential that I have created this world (laughs) in which my dog now sees the construct of race through me. Um, just because I have taught them to him through my like subtle nonverbal cues of, of a lot of stuff. <laughs> if only we could talk to dogs and just understand. If you had five minutes to talk. to Well, no, I'm going to make it harder. If you had two and a half minutes to talk
16: to Samson, what would oh my you get gosh. out of the way? <laughs> what questions would you
15: ask? Okay, this would be so hard to do, but. Like, I would want to know about his history, but that would obviously take up way too much time because I feel like being a Southern boy, he would have like a really hard time talking fast. Right. So I think I would just spend those two and a half minutes being like, you are such a cute dog. <laughs> Everybody in general, regardless of race, I don't even know if you can tell the difference between people. They would love you. And he loves attention so much. And, you know, like when he does get settled into a situation, he can be such a like cute, you know, like diva where he always wants pets and scratches. But I would say to him, Samson if you were this nice to every single person you met on the street and you just didn't let fear dominate you, people would love you so much. Oh, I know. I wish I could give them that pep talk every day. I wish someone would give me that pep talk, too. <laughs> Samson, come on. Let's go on a walk. Come here. Come here. Yes, good boy. Okay. Okay, Okay, sit. Good job. Thank you.
10: Producer Tracy Hunt. Uh, Thanks also to Kat Chow from NPR's Code Switch. You can find a link to her original story. Uh, at radiolab.org. Thanks also to Samson. (coughs) And tolerant dogs everywhere.
5: Natural Waste, Canine Companions, and the Lure of Inattentively Pooping in Public. What a title. Sticking with dogs for just another beat. Raffle here. Raffle Krol Zeddy. I write for Harper's Magazine has had a
3: long-standing question, one that was answered by a German scientist, Matthias
5: Gross, in that scientific paper he just mentioned. So this began for the author of the paper much the same way that it began for me. It was an idle curiosity. He was raising three kids. He would take them to the park, their children and families around. But there was also the sort of crisis level of dog poop. He sees people letting their dogs poop and then just walk away. And he starts to wonder, how can you just leave the poop? How can you do something so, so specifically antisocial as leaving feces on the sidewalk? What's with these people? What's what's going on in people's heads? And so, On the way to work in the morning, he would follow people at a certain distance without talking to them and take notes. You have the study there in front of you. I have the study here in front of me. And I quote, Neighbors watch poop falling out of the dog. What it means to poop in public. Huge pile of excrement on the ground. And on the way back, dog owners look away from their pooping dog. In the afternoon, he does the same thing. Through the medium of poop. The earlier science had had, my God, the fact that there's previous studies was kind of great, but (laughs) in the previous studies on this, which he cites, the typical distinction is between people who pick up the poop and people who just leave the poop, which they categorize as uh, responsible and irresponsible dog ownership. But after he's observed these people for a while, he starts to recognize that there was Something more complicated, intriguing, and subtle going on. So, one of, one of the behaviors he observes is people bagging the poop, going to that trouble, and then just leaving it.
3: You mean scooping the poop up, putting it into an envelope, a plastic envelope
5: of some kind, and then they don't throw it away? Yes, people will bag and abandon, sometimes right next to garbage cans that are not overflowing. Mm-hmm. And then the more intriguing version he observes is people bag it and then display it in some prominent place, sometimes hung on a fence, sometimes hanging in bushes or shit trees, which is the actual vernacular term. Oh my God. Yeah, actually my favorite mysterious example that the paper points to is people hanging the bags of poop on construction fencing with flashing lights on it so that at night, it creates a kind of disco for the poop. That's that's how he describes it. <laughs> and what the author reads into this is that it's a kind of middle ground between responsible and irresponsible actions. Maybe you bag the poop to begin with because someone's watching you, you want to be seen as a good citizen, but then later, it switches to a form of rebellion against the unnatural constraints of civilization. And so leaving the poop returns humans to nature in a way. Humans can no longer run around pooping freely in the wilderness. So the dog becomes a kind of proxy through which this aggressive, mischievous, atavistic desire can be played out.
3: Wow. So, I want to drop my pants and just poop on the street, but my dog does it for me. Something like that, yes. But does that mean that when you see a man or a woman with a dog who poops on the street, you should be thinking,
5: she's just pooped. Well, um, it's uh, at the very least, if you decide to get into it and tell somebody, pick up your poop, The U is ambiguous.
3: I am honestly speechless by that, Robert. I did not see that coming. Well, uh Raffle just walked in and 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 left it there for us. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then it was picked up by our producer Simon Adler, who bagged it and put it <laughs> on display. As okay. as, is, as as sometimes happens. By which we mean, of course, that Simon produced that, <laughs> that interlude. And I guess it's time to take
17: Yes, uh, a we break. should
3: go to take a break. Um
10: We'll be back with a few more questions and answers. Coming up right after this.
17: This is
6: Chelsea Gibson calling from Dayton, Ohio. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
13: Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with, or petting your dog, or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab.
4: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama.
3: Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy.
5: Enviable posture. (laughs) I am a writer and I have this this very slight hunch and he has none of that.
18: A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you
3: get your podcast. Jed, Robert Radio Lab. So we're going to continue in our little
14: cavalcade of questions and answers. And the next one up comes from producer Pat Walters. Hello, uh, Emily. Are you there? I'm here. All right. So a few months ago, I called this tree scientist.
12: I'm Emily Burns, and I'm the science director with Save the Redwoods League.
14: Okay. Uh, I have so many questions about trees for you. All um, right. Awesome. But I really just had one question. So I uh, I read this little tiny article in the spring. I think which had a fact in it that really shocked me. Uh, And the fact was that redwood trees have 12 times as much DNA as humans. Like, is that true?
11: Well, it looks like
12: it is turning out to be about eight times bigger than the human genome.
14: Okay, eight times. So 12 is close, a little uh, overestimated. Maybe this is not a reliable source. But the idea that, like, these trees would have so much more DNA than us just kind of, like, twisted my brain up in seven different ways.
6: Yeah, it's pretty crazy.
14: Because you usually think of genes as having
3: something to do with complexity. Exactly. So if you're Mozart or you're a tall tree, like, who's going to have the most genes?
14: Right, like a redwood tree is basically just a big pine tree. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, like, what is all that extra DNA even doing?
12: Well, I'm not a geneticist. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I'm a forest conservationist.
14: But one thing Emily was able to tell me is that I was missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. And why is that? Well, so Emily told me...
12: That
15: Coast Redwood, while it does have
12: a very large genome...
14: There are tons of things that have way more DNA than us.
12: It's kind of mind-blowing.
14: You just got to know who to ask. Mm-hmm. We just do uh, like a
18: rundown okay. of... Okay. All right. Yep. I can do that. Cool. So an onion has five times as much. An onion. Yeah. Boring little onion. There's some salamanders with 40 times as much. 40 times.
14: Wow. I've got a list here. Things like lungfishes. Lungfish. Yep. A cockroach. A newt. <laughs> Bread wheat. Really? A lobster. A lobster just lies at the bottom of a cold sea and molts. It gets even worse because at the top of the list, arguably the organism with the most DNA in the world with fifty times more DNA than a human is a tiny, not-so-remarkable-looking little Japanese flower. That's deeply strange. I know. It's puzzling. This, by the way, is biologist Ryan Gregory, professor at the University of Guelph
18: in Canada, and uh, my area of study is why certain salamanders have 40 times more DNA than you and I do. And
14: Ryan told me, like, no one knows exactly why that's the case.
18: Well, that's why I still have a job is because this is something we're trying to figure out. But according to Ryan, here's what we do know. So in your genome, and I, I say yours, and I mean that in, in mine too. I'm yeah. not trying to single you out. Take the human genome. Your genome is, is about one5 to 2% genes.
14: Only about 1% to 2% of your DNA is involved in making the stuff that makes up you. That's the stuff we call genes. Now, there's another couple percent that we now think are there to turn those genes on and off, which is important. But the vast majority of your DNA is... Kind of accumulated uh, detritus could be a gene that sort of mutates and degrades and no longer works. It might be random redundant copies of other DNA. For example, it might be
18: uh, AT, 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 AT a million times. Some of it is bits of virus that became essentially stuck in the genome. And so now they're passed on from parent to offspring.
14: Oh, but the key thing is that all these little random bits of DNA, they're just sort of hanging around. They're not really doing anything. Which, Ryan says, is how you can end up with a huge genome, even though you're just a tree, or a frog, or a worm, or even a single cell. That's right. But if they're not doing anything to help me, why? Well, they they would be doing things to help themselves.
18: Help themselves. So it's a little bit like, if you think about the bacteria in your gut, most of them are probably just there because you're a nice warm bag of nutrients that is a great place to live if you're a bacterium that would be kind of the same sort of thing that might be happening in the genome which is but they're not like alive
14: really right like they're well or are they i don't
18: well i don't i don't know i think it depends a lot on your definition of alive so i mean are viruses alive
7: mm-hmm.
18: uh that that's a philosophical question that is pretty difficult um but the shift that you have to kind of make In thinking about the genome is less that it's it's basically the recipe for making you or the blueprint for a human or any of those kinds of things. And think of it almost more like a little ecosystem, uh, a jungle with all kinds of different entities doing their own thing.
14: But the one thing that they all do is use us... To make copies of themselves. So in this vast ecosystem... In some part of your DNA, you'll get some ancient virus that just keeps... copying itself. A Little further down the line... another one. Doing the same thing. And then in some other part of your DNA... You've got this weird chunk just copying itself again and again, and again, and again. Almost everywhere you look, you have these dumb bits of DNA just copying themselves over and over again filling up your cells with useless DNA. So it's like a
3: hitchhiker that gets into your car and you turn around and suddenly, instead of Fred, there's now Fred and
14: Fred. Yeah. And then you turn around again, there's Fred and Fred and Fred. Right, and right. And then Fred and Fred and Fred and Fred. And that's pretty much how you end up with these super huge genomes. And sometimes that can be a problem. Ah, okay. So... <laughs> Ryan told me about, about this particular salamander. A certain group of salamanders called Bolitoglossini is part of a f- very large family of salamanders that live all over the western half of if North they, America. You find them in, they live in the U.S. The, uh, At some point, a long, long time ago, something happened in the environment that made the salamanders get littler, which is fine, except for this one problem. They have big genomes,
18: and the more
14: DNA there is, the bigger the cell is. So more DNA, bigger cell. Because... All the DNA has to go in the nucleus of every single cell. So as these salamanders start getting smaller and smaller and smaller, their bodies are getting smaller and their heads are getting smaller. But because they have these huge genomes, they tend to have
18: big neurons. And now you're trying to cram a whole bunch of big neurons into a tiny little skull. Well, you're not going to fit as many. And so relative to uh, other
14: salamanders that haven't been miniaturized, Their vision starts to degrade slightly. Their ability to look around in the world and distinguish like what's an insect and what's a leaf gets worse. They can't do the kind of visual
18: predation that you normally see in their closer relatives. And instead they've shifted to being lie in wait predators.
14: Basically having a huge genome made these salamanders get dumb. (laughs) And I couldn't help but think about, you know, like all the extra stuff you accumulate. It's so full of stuff, it's almost hard to get in and close the door behind you. Mm-hmm. But like, my partner and I have the storage closet that's just packed with crap
0: a watering can, a broom,
14: and a car battery, pile of button down shirts. One's a little bit too small, one's just kind of. Boring. Pat Waldo is very uncomfortable getting rid of things. (laughs) Yep. A lot of it, I don't even know why we have it in there. There's like a three and a half foot tall roll of brown paper.
0: Several unfinished art projects. We're in a break period right now.
14: On top of that is a flower pot.
0: Four air conditioners.
14: Oh, there's another backpack.
6: A shoebox.
14: I remember when I was in my twenties and like everything I owned fit in a couple of suitcases. I was light, agile, free, but um, now Tupperware bucket full of paint. Charcoal? Unused fabric. I have so much of this stuff. But at least you don't have... A closet in which shoes replicate themselves over and over again. <laughs> but honestly, sometimes it feels that way. And, you know, I don't want to complain. I'm, I feel very lucky to have all of these possessions. But sometimes the pileup starts to feel like a burden. It does. It does, feels like a burden. Like, I feel like I'm going down the salamander road, just getting bigger and dumber and slower and bigger and dumber and slower. But there are definitely surprises. Uh, But then I talked to science writer Carl Zimmer, and he made me feel a little bit better about all the extra junk in my closet or in my cells. Literally none of us would be here if not for that one gene. Because he says there's one little bit of DNA that climbed out of the junk closet and made all of us possible. Well, what is it? well uh you've actually heard about it before what's really special about mammals
3: is
1: that female mammals Uh, or at least placental mammals, um, carry young around inside the body.
14: David Quammen told us about it in a piece we did a while ago called Infective Heredity. And it's basically this gene that makes a protein, which helps make some cells. These very special layers of cells. In the placenta. Cells that let it grab onto the mother's uterus and pull nutrients in to feed the embryo. So
1: it carries nutrients in, it protects the fetus from the mother's immune system. Now,
14: when we talked to David about it,
1: and how did we get that good idea? We got that good idea from a virus.
14: We were sort of amazed that this gene had come from a virus. But what I learned from Carl is that this little gene sat in the junk closet of our DNA for millions of years, doing nothing, making little copies of itself, not helping me at all. Until suddenly, millions of years later, there's a mutation. And that little useless strip of DNA got repurposed, co-opted. It took on a new job for us. That's amazing. And now we've evolved a dependence on it so that we have to have it. Or couldn't be us without it. Box with it. So I got a pic, a picture frame, some notebooks, guitar case, fishing poles. You never know. You never know. You never know. Okay. So That's like here. the motto of this room. It's like you never know.
16: Whatever the hell this is. What is this?
14: It's a piece of um, the drafting table that. Where's the drafting table? Do we bring it back to Pennsylvania?
7: No, it must be in that extra room.
14: Who knows? There's a drafting table somewhere <laughs> It's missing. I do want that.
3: I know this feeling. Mm. I know this feeling completely. What's that like? Rummaging around for. A I bit? just don't like to let things go because I think that they will always bounce back at some They'll point. Have I just their can't.
10: placental revival That's at some <laughs> point. Those old pants, the bike that, yes, without I, the wheels. Yes, I have
3: tight pants that are waiting for me to get skinnier, sitting in the corner. Of the club. <laughs> There's <laughs> a whole. This is about real optimism that the that the the weight you carry is actually one day going to come back and make you light and airy and beautiful. That is a perfect segue to our next question, Robert. That's right. Which
10: is it, which is itself uh, imbued with the spirit of optimism, hope, and reconciliation. And it's... In a very dark, crowded, and ugly place. Yes.
17: Whoa. Indeed.
10: Indeed. It comes from uh, producer Carter Hodge. Hi, Carter. <laughs> Hi. Hello, Carter. Hi.
17: Hi guys, where, how are you? Where are you
3: calling us from?
17: By uh, way? I'm in the studio at WUNC in Chapel Hill. This is a rare <laughs> privilege to put Broadway
5: musical, a musical, yes,
1: in a
3: territory which usually eschews it. Oh, in uh, what are you? Are you, so, are you? I'm talking about your fervent hatred of the American songbook. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm not a fundamentalist about
10: it. Oh, okay. I thought we were talking about <laughs> a subway noise. Is that no, true? No, no, we're
3: just a subway noise. There's nothing to do
10: with it Broadway. It is a at all. subway
17: noise. It has a little to do with Broadway.
10: Okay. So, okay. Carter, what is? Uh, maybe you should just begin by um, framing the question, the deep mystery?
7: Yeah. Sure.
17: Is- it, the deep mystery is around this sound. Um, that i 've been hearing in the subway since I was a younger person, probably since I was in middle school it's a sound that you hear when you 're standing on the platform and the train is just about to leave the station and and you hear these three pure high tones Dum, da, da. That's the one. Yeah, that's the noise.
10: Oh my God, that that is the New York sound.
17: Yeah, it's a very New Yorky sound. And if you're a fan of musicals, you can only hear that sound as one thing.
2: That's totally
17: unmistakable as the opening notes to like the most famous song in West Side Story somewhere.
13: I'm pretty sure that it struck me the first few times that I heard it. Da, da, da. There's a place for us. I mean, just as soon as I heard it. In the course of
17: reporting this story, I talked to a bunch of different New Yorkers. My
13: name is Julie Talon. I'm a writer and director. Who
17: are all curious about this sound. Is it supposed to be West Side Story?
4: Is that intentional? I used to look around the subway car and wonder, hey, you all, you guys you notice that that sounded just like somewhere from West Side Story? I almost <laughs> wanted to, you know, stand oh, wow. up and make an announcement. That's Jamie Bernstein. Her dad is Leonard Bernstein, who wrote the music for West Side Story. I've, I've talked to my brother and sister about it a lot. Coming, All kinds of, you know, friends would just randomly coming, email me, Have you noticed that the subway plays the opening notes of somewhere? Like, people were really noticing it around New York City.
10: Okay, so the question is, there's a sound in the subway. Right. And and how would you finish the the sentence?
17: There's a sound in the subway. Where does it originate from? And is there anything interesting and beautiful about why it exists? Hmm. That's my question.
10: And do you have any guess what makes that sound?
3: Is it the train that is singing this to me or is it the steel rails under the train? That's what I thought that it was. That is singing it to me. I thought maybe it was, I thought it was you listening to singing rails actually. I thought it was the train
10: coming rounding the corner as it's coming in to the platform, it's scraping its side against <laughs> the incoming thing and that's creating a squeal that just so happens to always hit that pitch.
17: Uh no. That's not it. This is a Van Cortland down one
15: train
3: that has
10: Did you solve the mystery?
17: Well, you're just gonna have to listen and find out. Okay. So, Sarah Kari, the producer who'd been helping me, made a call to the MTA. I don't think this crosswalk works. <laughs> and they told us that we were supposed to hop on a train, a train, and go way uptown to this warehouse, this big train warehouse. And we were just told to find a guy named Sheldon.
7: Hello. Hi. Hi. So nice to meet Hi. you finally. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Hi. 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 Sheldon. Good to meet you. This is Hi,
19: Sheldon. Sheldon. Hi. Nice Hi. to meet you, Sheldon.
7: I'm
17: Carter. Sheldon is this engineer who works for the MTA. He's been there like 13 years. Anytime we can be and... This is
7: really
19: exciting. for us.
17: He took us into this massive train repair room.
7: Whoa. Oh, my goodness.
3: Wow.
17: And there were all of these subway cars up on lifts. Look at these problems. Wow. And they just kind of look like these like so empty shells of train cars. Here. We're walking into the electronic component oh, shop. Electric. And then Sheldon pulled us into this room off to the side through these sort of heavy doors.
19: This is an electric component shop. Anything related to electric control is done by here.
7: So are you bringing us here because part of what we're interested in has to do with an electric right. component?
17: Cool. And he took us over to a corner.
19: Interesting. The sound is generated by this.
17: And he pointed down at this rectangular piece of metal, the size of a
19: suitcase. Yeah. This is called face module. Face module, why called face? It's, it's changed DC to three phase. Wait. Uh, what is
10: this thing? This is a part of the train.
17: Honestly, it was a little hard to know because he just launched right into like engineering language.
19: Motor power source back to the DC six hundred volt.
17: But yes, it's part of the train. It's this little box that sits next to the motor, and from here on out, I would like for it to be referred to okay. as the singing
5: box.
19: But as for why it sings, the sound comes from. Hard to, to, to explain to you why it
2: has the sound.
19: Sheldon kind of punted,
17: and so. We had to reach out to someone for some help.
2: Oh, yeah, I could tell you that. Absolutely. Sara and I called yep, up. I'm Jeff Hackner.
17: Jeff Hackner.
2: I'm an adjunct professor of electrical and computer engineering at Cooper Union, where I've taught for 25 years.
17: I came across somebody, I think
7: someone who works at the MTA, and they referred to you as a legend in transit circles. <laughs>
2: uh, um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure who said that, and... Um, how much they had to drink when they said that, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I've been involved for many years.
17: And Jeff broke down the singing box for us like this. He started by telling us how the box even got into the trains to begin with. Stand
2: clear up the closing doors, please. So what happened is, I- in about the year 2000, 2000,
17: around the time America was obsessed with Y2K, Computer bugs, so-called hanging chat, stolen elections.
2: Transit Authority decided they needed to radically redesign the cars.
17: The MTA was like, we need a massive upgrade. And so they brought in all of these new train cars.
2: Yes, R142s. We called them the new tech trains, new technology trains.
17: It was going to be a whole new era. These trains were going to be more energy efficient. But one big problem.
2: The newer trains... Those require alternating current. The system is a direct current system. The third rail is direct current.
17: In other words, there was a power mismatch. The new trains ran on AC power. The subway system could only provide DC power.
10: Wait, they brought in trains that ran on the wrong kind of power? Yes. One was AC and one was DC? Yeah. What exactly is the difference between AC and DC again? Well...
2: It's all based on the flow of invisible electricity.
17: As Jeff explained it, when you have DC power, the flow is long,
2: smooth. It's steady, like a straight line.
17: With AC... It's
7: like pulsing, kind of.
2: It is, right. It's known as a sine wave, a sinusoidal wave. It's the same shape that governs the tides, the phase of the moon, the angle of the sun... So one is smooth and one is
10: undulating.
17: Exactly. And
10: AC and DC don't play well together?
17: Definitely not. And they knew this when they introduced the new cars? Yeah, they knew. The tracks have been providing DC power for like 96 years, so they weren't going to remake the tracks because then you'd have to shut down the whole subway for years. But they needed to use AC for these new cars because it was so much more energy efficient. And so it was a disconnect. (laughs)
10: Ooh, like the sharks and the jets.
17: Anyway, the MTA had to figure out a way to take this kind of electricity and turn it into this and
19: that. The sound is That's
17: where me. the singing
19: box comes in. It's changed DC to AC face.
17: That box that Sheldon showed us, that's what translates the electricity from one kind to the other. And basically what these boxes do is that when the train is cruising along, drawing in DC power from the third rail, power goes into that little box in the engine and inside that box are these little transistors.
2: You can think of these as switches, like, like light switches. And
17: those switches go on and off, on and off, on and off, really fast. And in the process, take that DC current, and I guess you could say, like, chop it up.
10: And where does the sound come in?
17: Okay, so this is the part that I don't fully in my soul understand. But as Jeff explained it to us...
2: The flow of current in and out of these devices creates mechanical stresses within them.
17: When you feed electricity into the box, the transistors on the inside of the box and the inductors and the various things, they get sort of jostled. And when they do...
2: They act like little loudspeakers. Huh. They're not designed as loudspeakers... Any of these devices, when you flow alternating current through them, will have uh, some tone emitted.
17: And it's the current interacting with these, like, physical parts? Yeah, that's what's
2: making the sound. Okay. Then a bunch of very complicated stuff happens.
17: (laughs) (laughs) But all you really need to know is that when you run current through the box, the stuff on the inside of the box gets stressed. It It vibrates, I guess. And that creates a hum.
2: A high-pitched whining sound that changes in pitch depending on speed.
17: And that's kind of the key to the melody. The transistors chop up the electricity at different rates depending on how fast the train is going. And the train has three gears. Well, you can think of them like gears. Gear one is when it starts out, transistors are doing their thing, and this is the sound that comes out. And then the train shifts to a higher gear as it accelerates, and then this is the sound that comes out. And then as the train settles into a groove, the transistor is slow, and then this is the sound that comes out. Which gives you that melody. And now we get to the real question, which is, is that a fluke? Or could that melody be intentional? So, so... We asked Sheldon from the MTA. Do you think that
7: those n- notes are like, just coincidence, like that's just the sound that it makes? Or like, could they have been selected?
19: No, it's not. It's not on purpose to keep you, to let you hear that song.
7: It's not to let us hear a
17: West Side Story in the subway? No, no. no,
19: no. <laughs> Boo.
17: But. Then we talked to Jeff Hackner. Every time that switch. And he told us to that when you're designing a system like that singing box with the three gears, each gear does have its own settings, its own frequency of electricity. And if you're the engineer, you're setting that for each of the three gears.
2: And you're picking a frequency that is not going to overheat the equipment and at the same time is fast enough. That it's going to average out to this nice smooth sine wave.
7: I think it's interesting that you use the word "pick." pick.
2: Yeah. Well, this <laughs> is part of your conspiracy theory yes. that yes. that that somebody designed these three notes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean,
7: but but I guess what like what I want to know is that whether or not it's possible to to have that kind of control oh, uh, and oh, choose the frequencies.
2: Yes. I mean, I mean, an engineer could say, yeah, I could pick a frequency between 1,500 and 3,000. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick uh, the A in the sixth octave because I think that's funny.
17: What? So that is totally possible. Sure,
2: because you have a little bit of wiggle room within the design. Interesting.
10: So he's saying it's possible that the engineer who designed the singing box set the gears at just the right frequencies to make just the right sounds. Is that what he's saying? Yes. Did you find the person who made the design choices?
17: Well, you know, we made a lot of calls, but yeah, we totally did. Hey, Carter, can you hear us? Yes, hi. Yes, hello. Can you hear me? Yes.
20: Yeah, of course.
17: So, Sarah and I managed to track down this guy.
20: My name is uh, Mathieu Vanas. That's a very French name.
17: We found him in Montreal.
20: My my friends call me Matt and my enemies call me Matt. So just go for Matt.
17: (laughs) (laughs) And he works for this Canadian manufacturer.
20: Bombardier Transportation, which is the original equipment manufacturer for the so-called R142.
17: These days, he's the head of vehicle architecture for all the different kinds of subway trains that Bombardier makes. Oh, so he is the guy. One of the guys, yeah. Back in about 2000. At the
20: time, I was a a young and cocky design engineer (laughs) um, for propulsion and braking.
17: Matt told us he was part of the team that designed the R142 and all the stuff that goes inside
20: it. There was a huge lab where we had all the the propulsion equipment set up, including the motors.
17: He says they tested every single aspect of the design, including the singing box. And when we asked him about the sound...
20: This is the very distinct sound that everybody talks about. Well, he knew about it. Yeah.
17: And not only that, he's a musician.
20: Actually, I was a musician way before I was an engineer. What? Funny enough, in, in a couple of hours, I'm going to have to leave you, if you're not bored to death by this story, to practice with, with a band. We're giving a concert in a couple of days uh, in Montreal.
7: What's your band and what do you play?
20: Yeah, actually, we play very... quirky, bizarre, funny French song that you would not understand, but they're quite funny. <laughs>
17: This is his band playing ACDC in French. ACDC, very appropriate, and some of their other stuff is very musical theater which made us think, what if this West Side Story stuff was intentional? Here you had this musician-turned-engineer slipping in a little Easter egg, a little gift, to all the New Yorkers who ride the subway every single day.
9: And
17: in fact, Matthew told us that after the subways were unveiled and people began to notice the sound, he even wrote a white paper where he came
4: clean.
20: And uh, here's a spoiler alert. The, 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 the punch of this white paper was the choice of notes is a pure coincidence. <gasps> I, I know. I, I this is this is this is a this is really spoiling. Are it. you sure? <laughs> I'm totally sure. And <laughs>
7: no.
10: So they did choose the notes, but not for any musical
17: reason. Right. In fact, just to sort of twist the knife a little bit,
20: he told us the first time I watched West Side Story was probably uh, a couple of days ago. Um, found it way too cheesy for me. Mm. And um, yeah. But what about? Uh, is it possible some of the other engineers in the room had you Do you know? think
17: no one in that room recognized those intervals?
20: I can assure you that on, on my deathbed, I will continue saying that no one at the time really cared or really knew.
17: <gasps> Darn. But even though my fantasy wasn't real, I think what is what is real is the way it is received, you know. And so it it's there whether by by incident or on purpose, but the way it's received is by all these people who are either unconsciously or consciously hearing this like more pleasant melody in the horrible, you know, screeching of the subways. That's true. There's this like lovely reminiscent melody that that so many of us are familiar with and it's this romantic anthem to reconciling difference.
10: Wait, remind me, what is the story that they sing in that song somewhere?
3: When at the end of the play, when Tony and Maria have, across the great barriers of culture and difference, a love so supreme...
7: Stay, stay with me.
4: Maria, I love you so much. Don't leave me.
20: Whatever you want, I'll do.
4: Just when Tony and Maria are finally together in Maria's bedroom. That's Jamie Bernstein again. And and yet...
20: It's everything around us.
4: All this terrible stuff has just happened. They had the rumble, and they're dealing with all this ghastly tragedy. Then I'll take you away, where nothing can get to us. And trying to rise above it. And so they sing this song. There's a place for us and they imagine this place that doesn't yet exist for them they imagine this song that that does in fact raise them all above the horror and the tragedy and the violence right it's 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 the characters are
17: all about reconciling difference and finding this like geographical space for like acceptance and and finding love and and i don't know it's it's a very romantic anthem for these like horrible subways in such a lovely city.
10: And just to lean into that metaphor, the subway platform is this like democratizing space. Everybody is right. there. That is right. the place for all of us.
17: You know, and and then, you know, just not to belabor the point, but <laughs> to belabor the point, there's also <laughs> this third level, you know, the, the generation of the noise itself. It's sort of poetic that the noise itself is created Buy something that is reconciling an old system yeah. of wave into a new motor to be efficient. And something in that in that translation process is creating these sounds.
10: It's like a little west side story of electricity. There's
4: a place for-
20: Now, a true story though, true story. Uh, a couple of years after, we were using the same technology uh, for the Long Island Railroad. Mm-hmm. The M7 from Long Island, um, the traction package is made by Mitsubishi Electronics. And the, the guys from MELCO, Mitsubishi Electronic Corporation, had figured out that this thing could sing. And the demonstration they always do with their inverter is that they, they make it sing the odd to the joy. You know, <gasps> no. na, na 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 wow. na 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 na
10: All right, well, thank you so much to Carter Hodge and to uh, Sarah Kari for helping Carter produce and report
3: that story. And to Matt Kilty for putting the whole thing together. Yes, indeed. And, um,
10: and to the folks at NPR's Code Switch who let us work with Kat Chow for her story about Samson and Andre Berman and Annie Brown.
3: Oh! And, yes, you, you say it to them before I say it to them.
10: Okay, because I, I have the advantage of... Uh, I will remember the email address,
3: which you will never do. <laughs> That's true. Maybe fact, I should say it to them and you could do the email address. No, no, that no. no. Why do do the whole thing? Let's, let's see where this goes. All right. Let me do the first part. Yeah. Listen, everybody listening to this show has probably at some point thought, I have a question too. Something has entered my head and I can't get it out because I don't know the answer and I want to know the answer. And I'm a wee bit embarrassed to ask. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that embarrassment is no longer a problem. Just write us here at Radiolab. Slash at at yes w, w, w N- N- oh W-N-Y-C. dot org. I know that part. <laughs> Radiolab <laughs> at W-N-Y-C. Yes. That's dot right. org I said it trippingly off my tongue, didn't yes, I? Yes, you did. You got yes. there eventually. So that's it. Prop so if you, you have the idea radiolab at wnyc.org W-N-Y-C. W-N-Y-C.
10: send us a question we will answer it or we'll try to you in to do our a next... slash thing like the radiolab
3: there's no W-N-Y-C. slashes
7: in email address sometimes
3: addresses. when you want to cache some particular questions you go radiolab at wnyc.org slash stupid questions or something like that and then we put them all in a little pile don't do that with email addresses oh that's a website It's a website yes I knew that somewhere there's a place for me <laughs> this is not the internet That's
10: for sure <laughs> Anyhow If you have a question Send it to us Radiolab at WNYC.org And uh, maybe in our next go around Who knows when that will be But we will we will try and answer Yes
3: Till
10: Til then, then I'm Chad Abumrah I'm Robert
20: krolwich Thanks for
15: listening To play the message Press 2 Start of message
20: this is Ryan Gregory from the University of Guelph. Hi, my name is uh, Mathieu Vanat. I'm calling from Lisbon, Portugal.
15: Cat Chow here to read the credits with Samson. Um, okay.
18: Radio Lab was created by Jad Ebermrad and is produced
20: by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer.
15: Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Goebbels.
20: Bessel Abt. Or empty.
18: Tracy Hunt, Matt Keelty, Robert Krolwich, Julia Longoria,
20: Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Kelly Prime, Sarah
15: Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster.
20: With help from Shima Hai, <laughs> Audrey
18: Quinn, and Neil Dinesha, our fact checker is Michelle Harris. <laughs>
20: I wish you a very good night.
15: Thank you. Bye. Oh, Samson, speak. Speak? Samson. Okay, never mind. The one time he doesn't speak. Okay, thanks guys.
5: End of message.
1: Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.